Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, I'm delighted to be back with Phoebe Watson. Hello! And for our episode this week... I'm very excited to say that we are actually going to be talking about a new book. I think I'd need to look over our catalogue, but I'm pretty sure all of the books that we've talked about are so old that they're all in like the public domain at this point. We tend to go for ones that are about a century old or more. Yeah, I mean, Lord of the Rings is probably the most recent book that we tend to we do. do quote an awful lot of C.S. Lewis. This is true. So like mid-20th century is it's kind of as recent as we go. So 70 years later... Yeah, for a really up-to-date book, we're going to be talking about Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, which is so recent, it came out just last month. So for this particular episode, we are going to really endeavour not to give any spoilers, because unlike all those other books, we can't necessarily assume that you've read it already. So we are going to try and be careful. But I was really excited about the publication of this book. I think I was like a lot of people, I really loved Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. It was the type of book I saw on every bookshelf and library shelf for years and then the BBC series came out and I watched I think like an episode of it and me and my dad immediately were like, we gotta read this. (laughs) So uh, I've been in love with that book ever since and you know I think like most people were sort of waiting with bated breath for the next novel by Susanna Clarke and this didn't disappoint. It's very different but it is really a fantastic novel and I've been excited for it coming out because in my regular world job the company that I work for it's like a sub subsection of Bloomsbury but it's technically within Bloomsbury <laughs> anytime anyone hears that they're like do you work on all the famous fiction no no I don't <laughs> but I am tangentially related to Bloomsbury so it means that I kind of get to feel like I'm cheering on my own team and it does mean that you get a very occasional little treat which is that I actually managed to get a proof copy of the book so the kind of early pre-publication copies of the book which of course I requested back in March and then it sat on my empty vacant office desk for about (laughs) was was it five months? Yeah about that. And, And so I ended up getting the book I think it was three weeks before the actual publication date so normally I don't kind of clear my table of things that I'm reading and immediately start on a new book but I was like I'll be damned if I don't read this before it comes out (laughs) so I immediately read it and then Phoebe who has not read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell yet yet and also has not I think you watched one episode of of the of the miniseries but even she was pedantic enough to say that if we have a, a pre-publication book in the house we have to read it before publication so so you you got there about a, a couple 24 of di- hours before I 24 think. hours so we got to be nice and smug and we were gonna like run and do a podcast immediately so that we could feel really smug about ourselves for being like ahead of the curve and then that I got, didn't happen that didn't happen I got kind of stricken by a chest infection so we're doing it a month after which gives you know people who've been looking forward to reading this like I'm sure they've already finished it it's quite a short book for people who know Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell they know it as like you know like a real doorstopper like it would do some damage if you threw it at someone uh, but Piranesi is a much more like manageable bite-sized kind of book definitely I mean even you read it pretty quickly yeah even I the slowest reader in the world read it very quickly 
Uh, and we both really enjoyed it. Because it's quite a new book, I think we're going to take a little bit of time to sort of set up the world of the book, because I feel like I love the plot and I love the characters, but to me, the essential point of the book is its setting. Yeah, uh, that's the really interesting bit. And it's also the bit that we can talk about without giving things away, which is great. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a like elusive, mysterious kind of novel. And so like, there's lots of other novels that even if it was new, I'd say like, oh, well, knowing the plot kind of doesn't make any difference. But this one, I kind of think it's better to to read and, and experience because it, it is deliberately quite mysterious going through it. So like I said, we will do our best and I'll be listening back on the edit to make sure we don't say anything too, too spoilery. But yeah, so we were really drawn to talking about the, the setting of this book. Yeah, it's just so beautiful, a world creation. Mm -hmm. um, just very interesting. Yeah, and kind of different to anything else I'd come across. So the book centres around this character who is called Piranesi, but uh, he's called that by the only other person he knows in the world. And he knows it's kind of a joke, so it's not really his name, but that's the name we have for him. So Piranesi is this man who is living in this vast building. In fact, there's nothing other in the world than the building. It's that, Yeah, that he knows. It's that, just the house. Yeah, he... He has this idea of like far distant hills, but I don't know if you ever really see them. It's just the house that he sees. Yeah, just like corridors upon corridors around courtyards. Yeah, pretty much all of the house is covered with big marble statues and they all represent in, in some ways quite intricate things. They're not just like people, they're animals or they're kind of presentations of different things like beekeeping or there's obviously um and we're going to come to this when we're discussing it that there's a strong narnia influence so there is a statue of a fawn talking to a little girl and so they're, they're quite kind of intricate statues all over the the, the halls of this house the many halls and yeah i think a really interesting way to think about the house as a world is as almost a mixture of the wood between the worlds from the magician's nephew and charn yeah yeah, and I think Susanna Clark in her interviews about it has said that those two were really big influences when she was writing it. And so those are kind of the regular levels, but as you sort of go down further into the building, you find the tides. There's like a sea and, you know, there are there's seaweed and fish and things like that. And then as you go up further in the building, there's clouds and there's rain and throughout there are birds. But other than that, it's not like a heavily dense place of like flowers or or plants or anything like that it's pretty much stone and water yeah stone water and whatever can live in the water yeah or fly through the air yeah and then some of it i think he says is more like pristine and then there's other parts that are falling apart and the, there's parts that have like pools of water and the stone is crumbling and i think other parts where the statues are sort of covered in coral so it's this quite eerie um mysterious uh haunting kind of place and like we said he is the only living person bar one other which he calls helpfully the other and they meet on Tuesdays and Fridays to discuss what they've been up to and their sort of various For studies that they're exactly. doing exactly one hour and they discuss their various findings and uh, things that they found out about the house and other than that, there are he has found a series of skeletons which he has named and knows intimately and sort of has developed kind of rituals, like not 
yeah, almost but, like religion type reverence towards these skeletons. He takes care of them. He brings them sort of food and offerings. Yeah, like there's one of them that was all like scattered and falling apart. So he collects all the pieces and like found a box for them and like reveres them in a sense, but also sees them as his community. Like he'll mm-hmm. go and talk to them. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as he knows, these are the only people that have ever existed. He doesn't imagine that there's a wider world he doesn't know anything other than this house that he is in and this is kind of the extent of his knowledge of everything and as the book goes on I think it becomes more clear of like there is a wider world but certainly that the house itself is the very center of everything for him. Yeah and I think we were just going to start with a quote from the very beginning of the book to give you a greater sense of what this world is like. Yeah, absolutely. When the moon rose in the third northern hall, I went to the ninth vestibule to witness the joining of three tides. This is something that happens only once every eight years. The ninth vestibule is remarkable for the three great staircases it contains. Its waters are lined with marble statues, hundreds upon hundreds of them, tier upon tier, rising into the distant heights. And then he goes on to describe this joining of the tides, which he's watching from a niche of a statue. A towering peak of water swept up to where I crouched. A great hand of water reached out to pluck me from the wall. I flung my arms around the leg of the woman carrying a beehive and prayed to the house to protect me. The waters covered me, and for a moment I was surrounded by the strange silence that comes when the sea sweeps over you and drowns its own sounds. I thought that I was going to die, or else that I would be swept away into the unknown halls, far from the rush and thrum of familiar tides. I clung on. Then, just as suddenly as it begun, it was over. The joined tide swept on into the surrounding halls. I heard the thunder and the crack as the tide struck the walls. The water in the ninth vestibule sank rapidly down until they barely covered the plinth of the first tier of statues. I realised I was holding on to something. I opened my hand and found a marble finger from some faraway statue that the tides had placed there. The beauty of the house is immeasurable, its kindness infinite. Mm. And I think that's a really good place to kind of start onto our topic because that line that phrase that he has at the end, the beauty of the house is immeasurable, its kindness is infinite. I think there's sort of variations on that theme, but that's sort of a prayer that he says throughout the whole book. And I think it's a really interesting like line because it, it opens up the whole attitude that Piranesi has about the world that he's in, which is that Whereas when you're reading it, it sounds like such a harsh and cruel place to live in some ways because there's just no shelter or there's no like natural abundance of food. But he really understands the world that he lives in as a, a gift and a beneficial force. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he also developed his own form of religion to that. Like we were saying with him gathering the dead, that I think it's a really interesting look at like that primal instinct of humankind to seek meaning and to see something higher than ourselves. Yeah. Um. That yeah. He like that. That he prays to the house at the beginning mm-hmm. to preserve him, and his recognition of the house as like a sentient thing. Yeah. Is very central to the book, and I think that's just 
a really interesting thing to think about that we were looking for a quote on it, but I wasn't able to find it. Um, but that even pre-Christian, pre-revelation, God has put within us this instinct to seek the divine and to recognise the world around us as something that is greater than we are. Yeah, and more than just a sort of bare reality of yeah. dirt and mountains and water and air. Or just a tool to be used. Yeah, and I think obviously from a Christian perspective that his particular attitude is, is maybe more pantheistic than we would understand the world. But I do think that it is still relevant for us to um, kind of respect what he's saying, which is that this world is providing him with the ability to live. And so it is sustaining him and he has such a awe and reverence for the world. Yeah, absolutely. That he really recognises the gifts it gives us of like the gift of fish. And then at some points he even like uses the birds as messengers of the house. Mm-hmm. Like the, even that idea of revelation that it is trying to tell him something. Yeah. And gives him wisdom of warning that a storm is coming and to yeah. be industrious and it saves him from something else. Yeah, that he is really paying attention to the house. And I think that maybe kind of brings us to like the other element of it, because he's not just living within this house. He's not just surviving. As I said, he and the other are kind of meeting and discussing because the other is a scientist who is looking to uncover what he calls the secret knowledge. And he believes it to exist somewhere in the house and that I've got the list of things that the secret knowledge will do if they find it. The quote from the book says, the other believes that there is a great and secret knowledge hidden somewhere in the world that will grant us enormous powers once we have discovered it. What this knowledge consists of, he is not entirely sure, but at various times he has suggested that it might include the following. One, vanquishing death and becoming immortal. Two, learning by a process of telepathy what other people are thinking. Three, transforming ourselves into eagles and flying through the air. Four, transforming ourselves into fish and swimming through the tides. Five, moving objects using only our thoughts. Six, snuffing out and reigniting the sun and stars. Seven, dominating lesser intellects and bending them to our will. Mm. which is the mission that the other has kind of set Piranesi on to discover where the the secret knowledge of the the house lies. Yeah, which I think is a really interesting contrast to Piranesi's own search, which the book is formed in diary entries. And the next diary entry after the first one I read out starts with, I'm determined to explore as much of the world as I can in my lifetime. Yeah. So they're both seeking and exploring. Mm Mm-hmm but the other is seeking for the purpose of this special knowledge. Yeah. Whereas Piranesi kind of says, well, I don't really know how much use that's going to be. Yeah. And while he is kind of doing it for the sake of the other. Yeah, he's only um, the only other person he knows in the world, so he doesn't ever want to displease the other. But I think it's really funny because he even says, I don't know what I would do with telepathy because whose mind would I read? (laughs) So he, he has a much more pure and natural wish to know the world that he is in, both for its own value and also for its utility as well. Yeah, I think those are very tightly intertwined. That mm-hmm. he doesn't ever say that he, the house is just valuable for its own sake, mm-hmm. and therefore 
doesn't allow him to use it, mm-hmm. but kind of combines those two. Yeah. Like, he delights in finding a space where he can more efficiently collect seaweed to dry it for firewood. Yeah. That he delights in those things as well as in the beauties of the house. Yeah, and I think that kind of sets up the theme that we want to explore for this episode, which is that I feel like these kinds of stories that are very focused on like a brand new world and particularly one that is essentially empty of other human beings are a really good ways for us as readers to explore what humanity's relationship to the world is. And we've done a lot of episodes on this podcast, which kind of center on the idea that like literature allows us to see the world again with new eyes and be filled with wonder and be filled with a sense of awe and delight in God's creation. But I think literature, especially like this, also goes one step further, which says, okay, you've got that information. What do you do with it now? What is... especially as Catholics, what is our proper relationship to the world and what are acceptable things for us to do to the world through our own sort of building up of civilization, our own exploration of science, our own artistic conquests, like all of those things that like, how should we actually be relating to the world? And I just love this story, Piranesi. And like we mentioned, it has a lot of Narnian elements to it so I think it's also really relevant to talk about it in the context of especially the magician's nephew where we see the genesis of Narnia but obviously like I said we're going to be talking mainly about Piranesi but I just think it's such a great example to see with just like a handful of characters how they relate to the world and it's not sort of interfered with like all of the rest of civilizations because it's just these characters and how they interact with this new world that we as readers are only just experiencing for the first time. I think it's a great stage for us to explore the relationship between humanity and the world. Yeah, absolutely. And can I just digress to say I love how the Narnia reference is done in this book? Mm -hmm. Because like... The introductory page has a C.S. Lewis quote on it. Mm -hmm. And at one point, one of the statues that gets mentioned is a fawn and a girl by a lamppost, which is, you know, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, that very evocative scene. Mm -hmm. But it isn't otherwise referential. Like, you don't have to... You're not reading it going, oh, I've bought an Arnie reference. I've bought another Narnia reference. Yeah. Yeah, on the opening page, it begins with a quote from the magician's nephew that says, I am the great scholar the magician, the adept, who is doing the experiment. Of course I need subjects to do it on, which is a quote from Andrew Ketterly, who is the sort of mad scientist magician uncle that sends Diggory and Polly to to the the world between the worlds, which ultimately leads them to Narnia. But I just think, and it's so clever, and even like the name Ketterly comes up in the story again, and you can kind of like look out for it. But it's it's such a like clever interweaving and, and reference, but without, like you said, without being sort of over-labored or without being like, if you haven't read Narnia, you wouldn't understand this book. Yeah, but also then acknowledging where it comes from, which I think is beautiful too. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think we were just going to talk a little bit about what Piranesi can show us about how we relate to the world because like we said there are these two sort of opposing ideologies which which are in the book and they're not necessarily two diametrically opposite things I think they're both scientists and they're both looking for knowledge but it's the way that they go about it that's very different. Yeah I think that quote that you just read of the magician's nephew is very representative of the other Mm -hmm. in that he is 
the one who's seeking to use and just seeking to find the answer without caring what the cost of that answer might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, uh, I think he often scandalises Piranesi by being like, oh, nothing grows in this house, or it's a desolate place, or all of these things. And, like, Piranesi is so taken aback by this, and he was like, how could you say this? He's also very scared of the house in some ways, which Mm -hmm. is very interesting. Yeah, he, like, the other definitely sees it as something that he should be afraid of and does not want to engage with. He just wants to find the secret knowledge. He doesn't want to engage with anything else in the house. And best if Piranesi does all the engaging, the risky bits. Yeah. And one of Piranesi's diary entries, he says, I have known for many years that the other does not revere the house in the same way I do. But it still shocks me when he talks like this. How can a man as intelligent as him say there is nothing alive in the house? The lower halls are full of sea creatures and vegetation, many of them very beautiful and strange. You know, it's just this real sense of appreciating the, the world and the, and the house as a gift, even in its sort of meagerness as a gift. Yeah, and I think that also really highlights how important it is for us with faith to see the world in that way mm-hmm. and to appreciate its beauty and the gift that it gives us. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other, in disregarding the value of the house, also disregards that supernatural element which Piranesi sees. Absolutely. And I think it's uh, such a lesson to us because I think it's su- it's the lesson of showing how our relationship with the world should not be one of domination or debasement. Um, and that's where... If all we're focusing on is what we can get out of the world and what power we can wield if we find the right thing in this space, um, I think that's a neglect of the fullness of the truth. I mean, like, I, like even if you think about it in terms of like JP2's theology of the body, like seeing the person as a whole person as opposed to seeing them just as something that you can use. And obviously, I think taking it out of the context of fiction where it's just these one or two people in the world like when we interact with our own world that does involve billions of people and I think respecting the world also comes with respecting the people who are in it and it's not an either or but the two go together absolutely yeah so much so we really see that the other's treatment of Piranesi Mm. is completely tied in with his treatment of the house and of the world yeah that both of them are just things to be used. Yeah. Even, I think it's quite telling that the other has named Piranesi, mm-hmm. but Piranesi doesn't have a name for the other. Yeah, he doesn't impose that kind of idea or that, I, yeah, that he has an authority to name him. Yeah, or that he ha- like the other hasn't set him up as an equal by giving him his name. That's true. And like, even as I said, Piranesi is kind of aware that his name is a joke because Piranesi in history was a painter of sort of labyrinths and prisons and these sort of fantastical, crazy structures, but that are ultimately kind of indicative of a certain sense that Piranesi isn't isn't fully in on what's happening around him. Yeah. And I think it's really telling that he's also willing to accept that because he sees the beauty of the house and he finds great happiness there. Yeah, whereas the other is the one who just wants to to dominate it, to remove himself from it, to be something other than the house. Yeah. And whereas Piranesi doesn't even seek his own name. Yeah. Because later on in the book, 
he calls himself the beloved child of the house. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the identity that he centers himself on. And it's so close to a beloved child of God. Yeah. Um, and even, like he says at one point, the world feels complete and whole, and I, its child, fit into it seamlessly. Nowhere is there any disjuncture where I ought to remember something but do not, where I ought to understand something but do not. And there's this sense that he really understands himself as part of the world, that it's not that he is separate to the world, that he is in and of it in a way that has like a real clarity of understanding of like creation. Whereas I think the other, like I said, it's all about domination. It's all about like standing atop or athwart the world that he is in. And it really reminds me of that bit in The Magician's Nephew where, uh, you know, the, the group of people are gathered at the beginning of Narnia and Aslan is singing the great song which conjures it into being. And Andrew Ketterly is is looking at the world and only seeing its sort of commercial purpose. He says, the commercial possibilities of this country are unbounded. Bring a few old bits of scrap iron here, bury them, and up they come as brand new railway engines, battleships, anything you please. They'll cost you nothing, and I can sell them at full price in England. I shall be a millionaire. And then the climate, I feel 20 years younger already. I can run it as a health resort. A good sanatorium here might be worth 20,000 a year. Of course, I shall have to let a few people into the secret. The first thing is to get that great brute shot, which is Aslan, of course. And Polly says, you're just like the witch. All you think of is killing things. And, you know, I think it's interesting that, yes, he's thinking of killing Aslan, but in a way he's also thinking of killing Narnia because all he wants to do is extract the monetary value out of it. Yeah, and you really see that that's how the other sees the world and Piranesi when he realizes how this search for the secret knowledge is damaging his relationship with the house he says that I realized that the search for the knowledge has encouraged us to think of the house as if it were a sort of riddle to be unraveled a text to be interpreted and if we ever discover the knowledge then it will be as if the value has been wrested from the house and all that remains will be mere scenery I think that's so important to understand. And I think it really relates to our perspective as as Catholics. Um, I've a bunch of quotes. I mean, I think popes have been talking about this for a long time. And I know it, it, in some ways it's so difficult because it, things like environmentalism or green movements or these things have become so politicized. But I still think it should be possible for Catholics to get to the core of the issue, which is that deliberately debasing, destroying uh, the environment, no matter what effect it had down the line, would be wrong in and of itself. That when we, because we talk about focusing on truth, beauty and goodness, and like beauty and goodness, like no one can see the, the piles of pollution and plastics and things like that, that just piled up and say, oh, that's a thing of good and beauty. Yeah, and that we we very easily sacrifice the good and beautiful mm-hmm. for those immediate desires. And I think, I mean, that's so tied in with sin as well. Yeah. Um, and obviously there is a whole bigger question that sometimes it's not possible for us to eliminate these entirely. Yeah. But that doesn't save us from the obligation to, in seeking the true, the good and the beautiful, to try and maintain those things in our own world. Yeah. And that even if the 
place where all this plastic is going is the other side of the world. Yeah. It is still this world. Absolutely. I think there can be a real danger, you know, like if you love Lord of the Rings and you think of, I don't know, England as the Shire to say, we must protect the Shire. But it is just as evil then to ship all of your your pollution to the other side of the world to have other people suffer for it and you know that's the other thing that it's not just about our relationship with the environment but like I said it's so tied with our relationship with our neighbour love love our neighbour that you know it's not good enough to say that oh well we can make our patch of dirt tidy even if it means destroying somebody else's yeah I think that's a really interesting point that comes up in Piranesi Mm -hmm. that Piranesi is really searching for that community. Mm-hmm. Like the first time we encounter the other, yeah. Piranesi is waving at him desperately mm-hmm. um, and the other ignores him and you can kind of see those two points of view. And then later in the book when Piranesi has his like revelation that he's not really seeking this knowledge anymore mm-hmm. and the reason he's not seeking it is because he's just encountered these group of statues at night, and he says, A full moon stood in the centre of a single doorway, flooding the hall with light. The statues on the wall were all posed, as if they had just turned to face the doorway, their marble eyes fixed on the moon. They were different from the statues in the other halls. They were not isolated individuals, but representations of a crowd. I almost forgot to breathe. For a moment I had an inkling of what it might be like if instead of two people in the world... There were thousands. Mm. I think that's so telling that he's just encountered this idea that he could actually have a community which is bigger than the other. And that that revelation, that that idea of community drives him to disregard the idea of the secret knowledge. Yeah, in favour of truly knowing the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, He says... Abandoning the search for the knowledge would free us to pursue a new sort of science. We could follow any path that data suggested to us, which is, I think, interesting that, like, it's not saying that he's going to relinquish looking for meaning in the world, but just that he's going to relinquish his, like, this imposed idea of what he should be looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also so important to remember that whenever we talk about this kind of environmentalism, it's never divorced from science. Yeah. Um, and that our faith in itself and that search for reason and for meaning are hand in hand with science. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that I was kind of struck with. I feel like Piranesi is such an example of the true scientist. And that is, is you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about like art and, you know, I personally don't really come from a scientific background. I mean, pretty much all of my friends went into science, but I did the arts route. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm certainly no stranger to it in a certain way, but I'm more, I feel more like a spectator in that kind of world. But it is not a question of setting up either artistic expression or like wonder and awe or even religion and faith versus science that those things are not against each other and that as Catholics we believe in the the true scientist which is a balance of those things and it really reminded me of the I don't quite know where I, I I was first told about this idea but the idea that Adam in the Garden of Eden was the first scientist because God shows him all the animals and gets him to name them. And so there's that sense of Adam 
categorizing and producing a taxonomy of the whole world at that point, which makes him a scientist. And that is also at the core, at the beginning of our understanding of the world, naming things, knowing things, understanding things. That's such a fascinating idea. And it is also very tied to Piranesi in that for him it's naming the halls Mm -hmm. that he's identifying and naming and like setting out a map of this vast space to understand it better Mm -hmm. and to appreciate it. But I think it's also really important that his drive for community and his love of the house are intertwined together and that preserving preserving the house and like revering it Mm -hmm. doesn't divorce him from the community. Mm -hmm. I think the other place we can go wrong with environmentalism is to put the environment above humankind in a way. Yeah, that like the the better thing would be if no humans existed and let the environment exist without us. Yeah, I think that that's definitely the the feeling to go too far. Like any stone that we turn is a a destruction of the world, which is not what we see, but that there is a, a path that can be walked that treads lightly but meaningfully and not wastefully. There's a quote from Susanna Clark. She was interviewed in the Hindustani Times, which I would really recommend that interview. It's quite a long one and she gives a lot of great detail. But she says, Piranesi sees it quite differently. To Piranesi, the house, which is the world, is full of meaning. He responds to it and it responds to him. It is constantly unfolding, showing him new things and filling his eyes with beauty. He wants to know everything he can about the house slash world. He is a scientist and he loves being a scientist. If he could, he would catalogue every statue, map every hall, take every measurement. But in the end, he knows that the house is more than the sum of facts about it. There is knowing facts about the house, and then there is something different, knowing the house itself, by which I mean feeling yourself to be part of the house, feeling yourself to be loved by the house, seeing the beauty of the house, communing with the house, and for Piranesi, the house itself is more important than knowing the facts about the house. Yeah, and I think one of the parts of the book that really tells to that attitude of Piranesi and his respect for the other inhabitants of the house, namely the birds, Mm -hmm. is in one of the holes he's found all these scraps of paper and he realises that many of them have been taken by the gulls in the statues and used to make their nests. And instead of driving the gulls away and destroying the nests, Mm -hmm. he waits until nesting is over and the gulls are gone yeah and then like very carefully extracts those scraps of paper so his pursuit of the knowledge about the house doesn't take precedence over the value of the house itself absolutely and I think that's so key because I think it is difficult for people in the modern age I mean we're all trapped into it like you know, none of us could live without engaging with the big manufacturing and industry that has made our lives possible. And for many of us who are living in sort of Western comfortable worlds, made our lives very easy and and comfortable and leaves us free to make podcasts instead of sowing the fields, you know? And talk to people halfway around the world. Exactly. And so I'm not, you know, you you never want to get so romantically idealised or to, to think yourself above these things. Like, oh, well, I make sure to bring my reusable bags shopping, so that means that I'm fine. Like, <laughs> we, we have to be realistic about our part in the world. But I do think that it is important for Catholics to 
you know, just reflect more about the world and our relationship with it. And I think it's unfortunate that in many ways the various movements around this have sort of, like we said, pitted the pro-life view of the world against the more kind of ecologically friendly approach to the world. And I do think that there is a Catholic path which embraces both of those things, you know? And that by necessity that they actually inform each other. It's not that you're constantly making a decision between these things, but that done right, the two work together, that we don't have sweatshops producing clothes and shoes and stuff for people in wealthier countries, or that we don't have planning cities in ways that are, are, are detrimental for families, or even like planning working days in ways that are detrimental to families, that a truly Catholic perspective would value both the world and the people in it in a way that upholds the dignity of both. And I have a, a quote from John Paul II, although I had I had quotes from all of the popes <laughs> on this. Um, so, you know, take your pick. Benedict XVI felt this way about like the throwaway culture as well, that this is not something that is particular to one pope. And I know, obviously, I've read Laudato Si by Pope Francis. I thought it was really powerful. But this is what John Paul II said in 2001, which is quite a while ago at this stage. But he says, Unfortunately, if we scan the regions of our planet, we immediately see that humanity has disappointed God's expectations. Man, especially in our time, has, without hesitation, devastated wooded plains and valleys, polluted waters, disfigured the Earth's habitat, made the air unbreathable, disturbed the hydrogeological and atmospheric systems, turned luxuriant areas into deserts, and undertaken forms of unrestrained industrialization, degrading that, quote, flower bed used as an image from Dante Alighieri's Paradiso, which is the earth, our dwelling place. We must therefore encourage and support the ecological conversion, which in recent decades has made humanity more sensitive to the catastrophe to which it has been heading. Man is no longer the creator's steward, but an autonomous despot who is finally beginning to understand that he must stop at the edge of the abyss. Which, like I said, I feel like kind of captures both the destructive nature of it, but that, again, that, you know, we can discuss a lot about exactly where is civilization heading, what kind of climate changes will be happening anyway. Like, you, uh, in some ways, to me, that question is not as important because the thing itself is something that we should be aghast by. Yeah, we shouldn't have to face the threat of 50 years' time sea level rise. Mm -hmm. to make us stop what we're doing. Yeah. It should be enough to see it as the damage that we're doing now. Yeah. And I think it's also important to say that when we treat people right, mm -hmm. we also end up treating the environment right. Mm -hmm. Like you were saying about the sweatshops, yeah. that those two go really do go hand in hand, that you also end up doing better for the environment if you do it in the right way. Absolutely. And that, you know, in Piranesi, you really read how he uses every little morsel. And I think that's a an idea that's very difficult. It's, I, it's, it's very difficult to me. I'm, again, I really don't want to convey that I'm sort of above all of this, because that is certainly not true. But that, you know, while at the moment a lot of I feel like a lot of the sort of green movement ideas is to take something that we're doing and replace it with a more quote green friendly version of it and I'm like well maybe the actual answer is to consume less 
and to, to rely on things less and to need less and to make more use of the things that we have. And that's so difficult for us. It is, it's not an easy thing. Yeah, it's really hard. And we're coming from that as people who love collecting pretty things. Yeah. And love enjoying the things around us. Yeah, yeah, I, can, I, I certainly am not someone who falls under the minimalistic category and I can't even claim that I'm not in the materialistic category, <laughs> you know? Um, but I think that's the reason why these stories are so good and important because they show us that we have to cultivate an ability to see both the beauty of the world from its pure aesthetic value that God has bestowed on it to like lift our hearts to him from its sheer beauty to also the beauty of its utility that it's not just a question of saying that like it's beauty or utility like there is a beauty in utility as well that it's such a gift that it allows us to build homes and build spaces. I think a really like funny example of this is Phoebe and I, I think I mentioned it in another podcast recently, but we've been rereading Jane Austen and I came across this great bit in Sense and Sensibility where Marianne, who is the dreamer and everything romantic and everything picturesque and never particularly practical. It's always about how sort of lofty and beautiful and uh, like aesthetic everything is. And then she's speaking to another character, Edward, who's very kind of straightforward, doesn't like airs and graces. He kind of doesn't try to to see more than just like the utility and like I said he definitely understands the beauty of the utility but like this whole picturesque thing is completely foreign to him so he's just been for a walk around the countryside where Marianne has moved to recently and they're they're discussing it and he says you must not inquire too far Marianne remember I have no knowledge in the picturesque and I shall offend you by my ignorance and want of taste if we come to particulars I shall call hills steep which ought to be bold Surfaces strange and uncouth, which ought to be irregular and rugged, and distant objects out of sight, which ought to be only distinct through the soft medium of a hazy atmosphere. You must be satisfied with such admiration as I can honestly give. I call it a very fine country. The hills are steep, the woods seem full of fine timber, and the valley looks comfortable and snug, with rich meadows and several neat farmhouses scattered here and there. It exactly answers my idea of a fine country, because it unites beauty with utility. And I dare say it is a picturesque one too, because you admire it. I can easily believe it to be full of rocks and promontories, grey moss and brushwood, but these are all lost on me. I know nothing of the picturesque. And then he goes on later to say, I like a fine prospect, but not on picturesque principles. I do not like crooked, twisted, blasted trees. I admire them much more if they are tall, straight and flourishing. I do not like ruined, tattered cottages. I am not fond of nettles or thistles or heath blossoms. I have much more pleasure in a snug farmhouse than a watchtower, and a troop of tidy, happy villagers please me better than the finest banditti in the world. Marianne looked with amazement at Edward. <laughs> I just love that description. It's such a great part of the book, but I think that kind of conveys the two perspectives and neither one of them is wholly bad it's not like one of them has 
a bad view of the, the countryside. Both of them appreciate it. But I think if we can unite to a certain degree those two visions, one which kind of inspires you with like the sense of the numinous and the sense of the beyond and the sense of even the uncanny, and the other one which also shows you that this is a, a place that provides and is a place that gives you sanctuary because of the utility of it. Yeah, and I think it's actually really interesting in the book that in Piranesi, because it's this house of statues and stone, mm -hmm. that it's very devoid from what we would naturally call the beautiful mm -hmm. in terms of... Like, you don't get those sweeping descriptions of scenery, mm -hmm. but there is beauty there. Yeah. And I think that's just kind of a reminder to us that civilization done well can also be beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, but that it's not just a question of saying only countryside is pretty, cities are always bad and evil or something like ridiculously simplistic like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that you can find beauty and meaning and community in those spaces as well. I know Hayley Stewart from lots of things, the Fountain of Carrots podcast and her own writing, but she wrote an article, I think for Church Life Journal, which was the, the, the wobbly chronology of disenchantment. But she talks a lot in that about what we were saying about the, the dignity and finding your place and knowing yourself to be part of creation. Um, she says, our deepest and truest identity is that of children, heirs to our father. And this identity points us toward hope and wonder. Even isolation, suffering and the presence of evil cannot diminish the fact that the foundations of this world, like those of the house, are anchored by love. And as we are shown in Piranesi, something powerful and redemptive happens when we navigate our world with eyes full of grateful wonder. And I think that pretty much ties everything up. There's only one more point I want to make, which is less about exactly what we were talking about and more just an aside. Um, I, I wanted to point out that Piranesi is also informed by a couple of stories by Borges. Uh, one is called The House of Asterion, and it's kind of a take on the, the legend of the Minotaur in the labyrinth, um, which was, again, these are really short, so they're just a very quick read, but I just think that they're really interesting for informing kind of a perspective on the... Uh, uh, on the book but the other one was one that I had kind of come across before but hadn't gotten around to reading and I really enjoyed reading which was called the the library of Babel which is again another like snapshot of building a world and thinking about how we encounter the knowledge that we can draw from the world so in the library of Babel the entire world is a series of hexagonal rooms that are all filled with bookcases and, and books. But the books are just a series of the same letters over and over again. And sometimes they form into, into actual sentences and words and, and in various languages. And sometimes they're just nonsense. And so it's just a really interesting way of like this, the, the, the narrator is talking about how the different people kind of interacted with like trying to draw meaning from these books and trying to um, find what their meaning in the world was. I'll, I'll just read a quote from it. Like I said, this is kind of not quite on the same topic that we have been talking about, but I just if you enjoy these kind of Genesis stories where it's a handful of people in a mysterious world, I think this is a really great example. But it says... 
This much is known. For every rational line or forthright statement, there are leagues of senseless cacophony, verbal noise and incoherency. I know of one semi-barbarous zone whose librarians repudiate the vain and superstitious habit of trying to find sense in books, equating such a quest with attempting to find meaning in dreams or in the chaotic lines of the palm of one's hand. They will acknowledge that the inventors of writing imitated the 25 natural symbols, but contend that that adoption was fortuitous coincidental and that books in themselves have no meaning. I just think it's such a fun way of like transposing the way that we interact with the knowledge that we can draw out of the world into this very kind of odd strange um, world that obviously I think the story is only like eight pages long so it is really condensed but yeah it's just a fun way of kind of again looking at the ways that we fail in interacting with the world and making sense of it. Definitely, and I think the like people aspect of that is really interesting. That you've got the kind of people fighting over the knowledge and how you interpret it. Yeah, and I think at one point they they come up with a theory that in the whole world there is a book which is the story of your whole life, and then everyone tries to go and find their own book, and then you know they're fighting for each other, and yeah, it's just a really like like I said, very compact but really interesting, and like even that name like the Library of Babel, that you know the 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 Tower of Babel and all of these chattering voices and trying to make sense of them. It's just a really cool story. So I thought. I would shout it out as kind of part of this genre, I guess, that I'm kind of calling Genesis world building exposition kind of stories. And so I think other than that, now we only have one last question to ask each other. So Phoebe, what have you been enjoying at the moment? I'm really enjoying autumn. Yep. Um, We've got some lovely autumn decorations up that mainly courtesy of Rachel Um, and we went to the National Botanic Gardens yesterday and it's just lovely to see the leaves changing and yet it's still been really sunny we've been really blessed with good weather yeah Um, and that kind of yeah that in-between season of anticipating Christmas but also kind of holding on to that for summer that golden October Absolutely. We have had a pretty golden October and Ireland is currently still in lockdown, which means we're being advised to stay in our counties, which means that um, we can't quite get out into the countryside to enjoy the beautiful autumn weather. So I'm very determined to get to as many of like the parks that are in our, our vicinity as possible and, and make the most of those great autumn colours. Um, for myself, I am enjoying a book which its title very much fits in with the theme of, of our podcast, even if its content doesn't necessarily. I'm reading The Labyrinth of Spirits, which is by Carlos Ruiz Zafon. It's the last, it's the fourth and last of his books that begin with The Shadow of the Wind. And unfortunately, he passed away, I think it was this year, which I was really upset about. I mean, Susanna Clarke and, and him were among a very small handful of authors that I'm like, if they wrote anything, I would buy it and read it type thing. I don't have that many authors that I do that for. But I'm relieved to find out that the last book, The Labyrinth of Spirits, I'm halfway through it, but it is a bit like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. It's a tome. It's a, a, pr- a pretty weighty book. So halfway through is actually a pretty good start. <laughs> and I'm just enjoying it so much. And like you said, it's a sort of perfect autumn reading. It's like gothic bar. Barcelona with mystery and intrigue and danger and it's kind of everything that I want for the season so I've been enjoying reading that and so now I guess it's time to say goodbye Goodbye. and and we'll be looking forward to talking to you again soon goodbye
This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless. Thank you.